Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Three Republican-appointed members of the state's Technical College Board have resigned nearly two years after their terms expired, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The three board members retained their positions because the state Senate refused to approve the appointment of members recommended by Governor Evers. The Evers appointees can now join the board as designees despite having not been confirmed by the Republican-led legislature. The board will then have a majority of Evers appointees. The three resignations followed that of Fred Prain, chair of the DNR board who kept his seat for years after its expiration and only resigned from the role at the end of 2022. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has extended the public comment period for the state's wolf plan. The comment period has been extended from January 10th, that's this next Tuesday, to next month, February 28th, that's according to the Associated Press. This is the DNR's first wolf plan in more than two decades. Most notably, the plan does not include a specific statewide population goal, a departure from the current plan adopted back in 1999. The plan instead recommends that the DNR work to monitor local populations. Managing the state's wolf population caused controversy in February 2021 after a hunting group won a court order mandating a a hunt to take place. Hunters subsequently exceeded the state's quota within four days. A longtime educator in the Verona and Madison school districts was killed after being hit by a car yesterday morning, reports the Capital Times. Beth Steffen was a principal in Badger Ridge Middle School in Verona, where she had also previously worked as a language and literacy specialist. Steffen also worked at La Follette High School, where she taught English for seven years and was an assistant principal. Yesterday, we brought you news of a third candidate for Madison mayor and also detailed some of the highly competitive races for the city's aldermanic seats in the upcoming spring elections. While the filing deadline to run for office was yesterday, the city's city clerk's office has extended the deadline to submit paperwork for two common council districts to 5 p.m. this Friday. District 1 represents the southwest side of Madison. It's currently represented by Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney, who will be running in a different district after changes to the city's maps. District 14 is in South Madison. It's currently represented by Alder Sherry Carter, who also found herself in a new constituency following redistricting. The filing extension was recommended by the city attorney after those incumbent alders failed to file paperwork saying they did not intend to run in that district. Last night, the Madison Common Council approved the basic outline for a 550-unit housing site on Madison's north side. The catch? The property, contaminated by coal and fuel storage for the nearby Oscar Mayer plant, still needs to pass both an environmental study and cleanup, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. State agencies have found the site to be contaminated with arsenic and petroleum byproducts that could expose future residents to toxic vapors and lead to increased risk of cancer. The California-based developers say that construction will effectively cap the contamination under concrete building slabs, pavement, or pond liners. 
Meanwhile, some environmental advocates say housing people at this site is an injustice waiting to happen and are calling on the state to use a stricter residential standard in evaluating whether the property is suitable for housing. Well, it worked for the city's trash compactor. Why not for snow removal equipment? Yes, the city of Madison wants you to help them name a dual-wing snowplow truck, a quad-axle brine tanker, a front-end loader that can navigate tight turns, and a trackless MT-7. I'm sure you can picture that. It's a device which removes snow on bike paths. Submissions are encouraged to be playful and punny, especially with references to pop culture or local character. Find out more at cityofmadison.com forward slash news and submit your suggestions by next week, Friday. That's Friday the 13th. And those are the day's headlines. Now on to the rest of the top stories. Madison officials have been working for years to make streets safer for pedestrians and bikers. Last night, the city council approved a resolution to further that goal, but some residents are concerned that pedestrian safety could come at the expense of some trees. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. The Madison Common Council met last night for the first council meeting of the new year. Notably, the council adopted a new code of ethics for the behavior of alders towards colleagues, city employees, and members of the public. Also on the council's agenda was a plan called Complete Green Streets. The council approved this plan, which will guide the city's approach to street design in Madison, making streets more friendly to bikers and pedestrians. In effect, the new policy requires city engineers to make more room for sidewalks and bike lanes in future road reconstruction projects. Complete streets plans have been used in cities like Milwaukee, Des Moines, and Nashville for years, but those plans only focus on pedestrian safety, while Madison's initiative takes complete green streets a step further. So says Transportation Director Tom Lynch. Complete green streets is one to make complete streets that accommodate all modes, which means they accommodate not just motor vehicles, but also bikes and pedestrians in a way that's safe. But then green also means that we understand how important um, our tree canopy is, as well as uh, green infrastructure such as rain gardens, and that those also need to be accommodated in the street right-of-way. The plan applies to sidewalks and terraces in addition to roads. And last night's passage was the result of two years of planning, which culminated last month in the release of a final 71-page guide to street design. In 2019, a city task force found that a little less than a quarter of the city was shaded by tree canopy and set a new goal for 40% tree canopy coverage. Those tree canopies, in addition to being aesthetically pleasing, also lower air temperatures when it's hot out. That's important because keeping paved environments cooler during heat waves is becoming more of an issue. A U.N. report detailing climate scenarios predict that Wisconsin will warm between 2.5 to 7.5 degrees Fahrenheit in 30 years, even with very low emissions. Lynch says that complete green streets will help the city to reach that new goal of keeping more of Madison covered by tree canopy. Many of us have been on recently constructed streets that are very wide. They have parking on both sides. They have bike lanes and they could be 40 or 50 feet wide, whereas some of the streets and some of our more traditional neighborhoods are closer to 28 feet wide, right? And so if we reconstructed uh, streets 
more in the 28 feet wide rather than the 48 feet wide, that gives us 20 feet to do other things with, right? Lynch says that although they can't narrow every road in Madison, they can start reconstructing streets by keeping in mind the complete Green Streets plan. But some Madison residents say that the plan would not be green at all. At last night's council meeting, several people voiced concern that the plan would decrease the amount of canopy trees in Madison. Jen Plants is the president of the Marquette Neighborhood Association. She says that, under the new plan, large canopy trees would not be allowed in smaller terraces. Instead, narrow canopy trees would be the only trees allowed in terraces smaller than six feet, an issue that Plants says she's had firsthand experience with. There's a difference between traditional large canopy trees that provide large amounts of shade and have a cooling effect to the kind of lollipop trees, um, like the one that was planted in front of my house when they took out the canopy tree. And that doesn't provide much shade um, or shelter at all. And I think um, as our neighborhood continues to grow and there's new construction, the chances of putting in large canopy trees just got a lot smaller because of the um, newly enlarged minimum terrace width now required. Lynch says this is because that is the only type of tree that would be able to grow in these tight terraces. He adds that this recommendation to only allow narrow trees in these smaller terraces is not only already city policy, but was included in the urban forestry report released four years ago. Plants maintains that she would like to see new technology allow larger trees to be planted in those smaller terraces. There are some ways to do that. One technology called SilvaCell uses a highly engineered underground infrastructure to support large trees in paved areas. But that technology comes with a cost. Lynch says that, while expensive, SilvaCell will be used sparingly across the city in areas deemed low on canopy coverage. Complete Green Streets passed on a unanimous vote last night, meaning that future street reconstruction projects will be subjected to the new priorities and goals. Lynch adds that city engineers are already implementing the Complete Green Streets philosophy around the city and have applied it, though not on paper, to recent street reconstruction projects. Still, Complete Green Streets will look different for different street designs, taking into account the specifics of that neighborhood. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wogiehau. The new year could finally bring closure to court challenges to the federal student loan debt relief program. But in the meantime, it remains in limbo and still making news headlines. So the Federal Trade Commission is warning people that scammers are on the move. Here's Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Mullen. Scammers targeting student loan borrowers in Wisconsin and elsewhere are shifting into high gear, spurred by the uncertainty surrounding President Joe Biden's debt cancellation plan. The Supreme Court will hear a case in late February that seeks to strike down the administration's plan to offer up to $20,000 in debt relief to low-income student loan borrowers. In the meantime, Federal Trade Commission attorney Michelle Grahalis says fraudsters are playing on people's anxieties. I would say a major red flag is any company that calls you up and asks you to pay now for help with your loans later, because that's something that's specifically prohibited under one of the rules we enforce, and so it is really unlikely to be a legitimate company. The president's debt cancellation plan is on hold while the litigation continues, so the government isn't processing any applications. The website of the U.S. Department of Education, studentaid.gov, has a link where you can sign up to be notified if the program is restarted. 
The pause on federal student loan payments has been extended until the litigation is resolved. Education officials say the best place to start for accurate information about your loans is to contact your federal loan servicer. Meanwhile, some scams promise to reduce or zero out your monthly payment, while others target parents who have co-signed on Parent PLUS loans. Grahale says the old adage applies, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So it could be loan forgiveness. It could be, hey, pay us X amount and we'll get your loans forgiven right now, or we'll get you some large amount of your principal balance forgiven or canceled, right? And that might be a benefit that the consumer doesn't actually qualify for. She adds other scams are circulating where they purport to be your loan servicer and ask that you route your payment through them. Still, others intend primarily to get people to divulge personal identity or banking information. For more tips, you can check the Federal Trade Commission's website. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. When you go into cardiac arrest, every minute counts. And that can be a major problem for people living in rural areas where the nearest hospital could be hours away. One UW-Madison researcher has a unique solution to getting life-saving technology to people in rural areas quickly. That solution? Drones. Justin Boutalier is assistant professor of engineering at UW-Madison. According to his research, drone-delivered defibrillators can increase the survival rate of cardiac arrest by up to 72%. He joined WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt earlier today. So, Justin, how did you first think of the idea of drone-delivered defibrillators? Where did that idea come from? Yeah, good question. So, this started, um, so I did my PhD at the University of Toronto, and this work started uh, when I was there in about 2015, 2016. Um, At the time, my advisor and I, uh, my advisor's name is Tim Chan, uh, we saw a YouTube video, actually, of a student in the Netherlands who had built a prototype of one of these drone defibrillator devices. And, and, and at, at the time, the, the prototype they had built was basically a drone with a defibrillator inside of it. And my advisor was already working on problems related to cardiac arrest and AED access, but a lot of it was focused on, like, you know, where do you put AEDs, what public buildings should they go in, and things like that. And so this was kind of a very natural, like, next step. We were like, wow, this technology is very cool. It could, you know, solve some of the issues around these static AEDs and sort of mobilize them. Uh, And so that's kind of how we got started. And before we get more into the, the drones themselves, why is it so important to get a defibrillator to the scene of someone who has a stopped heart as, as quickly as possible? Yeah, so um, cardiac arrest is, uh, you know, a big issue in North America. It claims about 400,000 lives each year. Uh, and, and research has estimated that your chances of survival go down by between 7 and 15% for every minute that passes without defibrillation. And an AED is really the only way to treat the cardiac arrest. Um, CPR essentially just buys you time until an AED can be used. Um, And so, you know, it's one of the most time-sensitive medical emergencies we have. Uh, And that's really like the the impetus for this type of idea. Now I want to get into your research into the matter here. What did you find when you first began researching into drones and defibrillators? Yeah, so my first project on this topic was published in a medical journal in 2017, I believe. And the focus there for us was trying to understand 
how many drones do we need and where would we put them and what type of you know improvement could we expect with such a system so it was a little bit you know just trying to gauge the benefits of this idea like is it worth it what's you know what's the upside here and how many resources do we need to kind of get that upside and and since then we've sort of just been building on these questions so a lot of like operational questions you know really focused on trying to help EMS systems who might be considering you know, implementing such a system, how to do it, right? Where will they be putting them? How many are they thinking they need based on their city, based on their, you know, social demographic information and things like that. And now with your newest research that just got released last year, what, what did you find there? Yeah, so in that follow-up paper, we really just did a more careful job of this idea. We were really focused on building, you know, like a mathematical model in this case that can solve these design questions. Uh, and, and there's, you know, a couple takeaways from, from the work. So one, I think, one of the exciting ones is that you don't need a lot of drones to make a big impact. And, and I think that's a good sign because it sort of suggests that this can be done without, you know, and by not a lot, I mean a handful of drones can really make a huge impact here. Um, and that's, that's encouraging. And the other one uh, that we worked on is just trying to understand what the potential impact on survival could be. And so we find, you know, quite a big potential impact. Of course, this is sort of a simulation, so it's not, you know, conducted in real life studies yet. But again, this is just sort of more evidence and more, you know, research that shows that there's a lot of value to such a system and that this could really make an impact uh, on cardiac arrest. And what did that research look like? And do you, do you plan to do more in the field research or real world research sometime down the line here? So, so yes and no. So for me, the research has been very much, you know, more modeling, more math, a bit more, you know, this operational design, tactical operations type of stuff. How would you, you know, when would you dispatch drones to what type of calls, things like this. But I do have collaborators and I know of, of folks around the world who are, who are kind of taking that second step, which is, you know, testing these out in real life situations, working on the human interface with the drone so that it can be easily used. Um, there's a lot of like, I think, interesting other questions around this. Um, and those, yeah, there are groups working on this here in the U.S., um, as well as in Canada and in Sweden. Those are sort of the, the main places that I, I see this work going on right now. You know, your research goes into drone-delivered defibrillators and things like that. Could this be potentially used for other sort of medical emergencies and things like that? I think so, yes. I think that the... And I thought a bit about this, actually, because, you know, I think that's part of academics, right, is trying to understand where else could these tools be used. And I think, you know, some of the perhaps classic ones that come up are things like EpiPens with sort of like allergic reactions or perhaps even like uh, naloxone for overdose incidents, things where like the medical emergency is very time sensitive and the solution or the, you know, the device that we need to, to deal with it is something that's lightweight and can be transported by a drone. So those are sort of the first ones that come to mind. There are perhaps other ones outside of the U.S., around like trauma kits. So, you know, I do a lot of work in low and middle income countries where road traffic accidents are a huge concern. And so potentially even in those settings, delivering trauma kits or blood um, to the scene or between incidents could be very helpful given how bad traffic can be uh, in those places. And we've talked quite a bit about these drones now. What would they actually look like sort of in theory? Would they just be like a defibrillator sort of strapped onto a drone that then sort of flies from, say, like an EMS center over to uh, where they're needed? Yeah, good question. So there's, there's, there's basically two kind of prototype versions that exist out there, at least that I've seen. 
one is exactly what you're describing. So it's like a classic delivery drone with an AED strapped to it, like a payload. Uh, and then it either, you know, drops that payload or lands and you remove it yourself. The other one that I've seen, which was the original idea, is where the AED is actually built inside of the drone. So then the drone would land, you'd carry the entire unit over, and the pads would kind of slide out uh, in that way. So those are sort of the two ways I see it. And they're, they're quite small. I mean, they're, 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 you know, not as small as, you know, the Mavic camera drones you see, but they're, they're a little bigger than that, but still very fast. They fly somewhere around, like, 60 miles an hour uh, at top speed. And now these would be most useful in a more rural area. You know, in sort of your research, have you found any sort of logistical roadblocks in actually implementing uh, sort of what you found? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. So, And this is an interesting challenge, right, is, is you're very right that the rural areas are where the most benefit can probably be had here. The challenge there is there, there's not quite as many cardiac arrests, so utilization is a little bit lower. Um, in terms of roadblocks, early on when we started this work, the biggest roadblock was regulation. So, you know, around 2018, 2017, 2019, that time, you weren't allowed to fly drones out of line of sight, which basically meant this, this couldn't happen. Um, but since then, I think almost every regulatory agency, so both in Europe as well as here in, in the U.S. and in Canada, have either created exemptions for this type of technology or had built you know, some type of infrastructure to kind of allow for this. So that was for a long time the biggest one. I think the going forward, perhaps the other challenge is just, and this is how it's always been with cardiac arrest, is just increasing awareness so that people are, you know, can recognize cardiac arrest, call 911 quickly, and then know what to do when a drone comes. So a lot of people get nervous around, you know, I'm not trained, can I use this defibrillator? What if I hurt the person? Things like that. And so I think a lot of sort of awareness and educational campaigns could be kind of coupled with this uh, to, to increase utilization. And Justin, do you have just any final thoughts on your research that you'd like to share with us here? No, no final thoughts. I mean, I want to thank you for, for covering this. I think this is kind of what I'm hoping for is right to get the word out and get more people kind of more visibility on this topic and on these ideas and the potential impact they can have. I think that's that's the main challenge right now. <laughs> I've been talking with Justin Boudelier, Assistant Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering over at UW-Madison. Uh, we've been talking about his research into drone-delivered defibrillators for rural areas and across the country. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thank you very much for having me. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Prairie Moraine is perhaps the most visited park in the Dane County system, but this is mostly due to its popularity with the area's dogs. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull explores the area and finds, finds there's a lot more going on than what first appears. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Prairie Moraine County Park is a 160-acre park just outside of Verona, overlooking County Highway PB. Its name is an accurate description, as the park's most striking feature is the glacial moraine running through its center. The moraine is no ordinary hill. 
Rather, it marks the farthest point glaciers ever reached in this part of the state. The river of ice moved south and west continuously, but the more south it went, the more its leading edge melted. This point, partway between modern Verona and Paoli, is where the glacier reached an equilibrium. It melted just as fast as new ice moved in to replace it. So it sat for thousands of years, apparently still, but always moving nonetheless. All that movement brought a lot of stuff with it. The dumbed-down analogy I always see used is that the glaciers were kind of like bulldozers, pushing along whatever got in their way. I think that's not inaccurate, but as you're visualizing this, remember that it's not just one single advance, like a bulldozer clearing a path. The glacier was constantly moving south, and it only seemed to stop where it melted away. Because of this, I visualize it as something like a bulldozer, but also like a giant conveyor belt. This icy conveyor belt brought all kinds of rocks down from the north, and deposited them at the glacier's end. They piled up on top of an existing ridge, and formed the moraine we see today. My knowledge and comprehension of geology is fairly limited, so the fact that I can write this and be somewhat sure that it's correct is a testament to the education opportunities the park provides. I'll come back to that, but maybe you should hear about the park from someone who knows it better than I do. Earlier today, I spoke with David Jelinski. He's a frequent visitor to the park and an active member of its friends group. David, it's nice to have you on. What do you think are some of the standout features of Prairie Moraine? Well, the best features are the terrain. Um, it's very unusual. Most parks don't have the relief, the slopes and the hills and the valleys that this park has. It also has, on the part that's been restored, a magnificent stand of oak trees, which are absolutely gorgeous. They've been working on that side of the park for about 20 years. It's right here in a metro area. Within 10 to 15 minutes, uh, just about anybody in the Madison metro area can get to a park and feel like they've been transported uh, up north. So that's, that's one element. Another element is the gorgeous prairies. We have been blessed with a dedicated group of people who enjoy the restoration of prairies, and that's introduced a whole lot of magnificent prairie plants that come up during the growing season and make walking your dog or hiking the trails visually interesting and stimulating. You mentioned walking your dog. I suppose I've buried the lead enough. 80 acres of the park, the unglaciated side, are fenced in as an off-leash dog park. How does this compare with the other dog parks in the area? Well, it's number one in the Madison area, and that's just not me. That's the voting public. You know, they do the best of campaign, and uh, I think it consistently comes up as the best dog park in this area. More importantly, when we're done with it, it's going to be the best in the nation. And that has pluses and minuses. The minus is our parking lot's going to be too small. The plus side is it's going to be extremely unusual to have an off-leash dog exercise area that has the vegetation, the variety of landscape, and the freedom of dogs running through grass, you know, in pure joy. I don't think there's going to be a park like it. We'll be in the top tier of parks in the nation just with the addition we're creating. We currently have 80 acres that are an off-leash exercise area. We're adding 12 more. It's a gorgeous uh, pine woods. That 12 acres is going to be added to the 80. And we'll have 92 acres of off-leash exercise area. You'll have the prairies. You'll have oak savanna. You'll have oak woodland. And you'll have a pinery all 
in one bundle for you to experience with your docs. And I think it'll appeal to just about everybody's sensibility. On the short term, we are in the process of removing a lot of invasive species. And that is a job that's probably going to go on for the next 10 years to finish at the pace of our volunteers. But I'm very excited about that because when it's complete, there'll hardly be a park of its stature that can compete with it in the nation. I'm not trying to oversell it. I just firmly believe it. I actually did a search, and to the best of my knowledge, uh, the Presidio in San Francisco, parts of it have been converted to an off-leash dog park, and that's gorgeous. They have nice trees out there. And there's another one in Colorado that would be in our size class. So we're going to be in the top three in the nation, and hopefully when we're done with the restoration, the top park. And I'm already seeing it during the summer. There's a lot of traveling public that stops by and eat their recreational vehicles and they're let their dogs out and enjoy the park. Walking with your dog in a natural environment off-leash is the best mental exercise for your dog and for you at the same time. You just get to see them be themselves. So um, I hope other people are enjoying it that way. The neat thing is, the park doesn't require a dog to enjoy. Whether or not you bring a canine companion, the park's terrain makes for an engaging hike. And remember, the dog park is only half the park's total area. The section atop and behind the moraine is less open, with clearly defined trails meant for hikers and the occasional dog on a leash. This section provides some spectacular views, but if, like me, you find yourself craving extra context, the park has you covered. A dozen signposts form a self-guided tour. You scan a QR code with your phone, and as you explore at your own pace, a guide narrates what you're seeing. Welcome to Prairie Moraine County Park. This park is 160 acres, divided in half into an Ice Age trail that centers on the terminal moraine in front or north of you, and an off-leash dog park to the east. Our hike today will be in the Ice Age Trail section along the moraine where the Ice Age Trail volunteers have been restoring prairie, oak savanna, and oak woodlands for the last 20 years. It's like a parks and landmarks, but in the park. As far as I know, this is the only one of its kind in the area. So if anyone in any parks department nearby is listening to this, please let me do one of these for you. Shameless call-outs aside, there is actual important work to be done at Prairie Moraine, and the time is approaching fast. The Dane County Parks website lists a bunch of volunteer days coming up, which David has more information about. If any of your listeners out there want to join us, I highly recommend they go to that site and the dates. Normally, we're going to be working on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Our goal is to finish our work by the end of March. And so Dane County graciously set up that schedule on their site to help us get more volunteers. There's a job for everybody. And we work in three-hour shifts, so it's very doable from a volunteer standpoint. We start at 9, we finish by noon. We basically have three jobs. One is chainsawing. And we have a few people that are certified to do that. And they're kind of the lead for the project area that they're working in because they hold the chainsaw. And then we also need people to haul branches to fire piles and clean up the debris on the ground. There's quite a bit of that to clean up. And that is probably the biggest task that we have. And then the final uh, job that we will be doing as soon as we have a good snow cover is burning the piles. And that's always a lot of fun. Um, tending the burned piles is a good time to get to know each other and, and uh, have some good conversation. 
regardless of where people's skill levels are. We need folks that are interested and willing to do that. But more importantly, it's an opportunity to be part of the transformation of this park. You know, 10, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, nobody's going to know what was done and who did it. That's our goal. We want it to look very natural. But the individuals who like to be outdoors and like to do this, it's a great opportunity. And you can be proud of your efforts when you're done because you're creating something that Dane County currently doesn't have. You just don't have this kind of a walk through a pinery with off leash with your dog. So we hope people do show up for that. I'll put a bunch of relevant links in the online version of this article. If you want to volunteer, you can check that out at wortfm.org. Thanks to David Jelinski for talking to me today. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, I thought I'd start out tonight with a couple of calendrical notes. Yeah, yesterday had the latest sunrise of the year. That was at 7.27 a.m. and 32 seconds. So uh, getting up in the morning should now get uh, at least ever so slightly easier. Uh, though I'm not sure the uh, heavy overcast isn't going to put a little bit of a task in that for the next few days anyway. Uh, this morning at 10.17 a.m. was also our closest approach to the sun during our annual orbit, otherwise known as perihelion. Uh, incidentally, the uh, two occurrences, the latest sunrise and perihelion, are not uh, related to one another, despite being so closely co-located in time. Uh, the degree to which the latest sunrise is displaced off of the winter solstice is uh, partly a function of the Earth's forward speed, so in that sense, uh, it is related, but uh, since the Earth is faster, uh, moving faster around perihelion. But uh, in any case, if your uh, brain didn't quite uh, get all the uh, components there, which I uh, messed up speaking any, in any case, uh, there is a much more detailed tr- uh, treatment of this on the WORT Weather webpage currently, if you want to have a listen to it. We've had a, a dull and dark few days to start this week, thanks to a big old winter storm that has been spinning up the plains to our west over the past few days, bringing a range of precipitation types out there, including a good bit of snow to areas most mostly out in the Dakotas and Iowa and Minnesota and up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, If you have a look at that storm on the WORT weather webpage on one of the water vapor images, uh, in the featured graphics, you'll be able to see uh, clearly the track of the upper-level circulation with the storm over the past few days from the desert southwest up through Nebraska and Iowa to around Minneapolis before the gyre then... uh, Increasingly gets cut off from the southwesterly jet stream feeding up into its eastern side and begins to kind of wobble back westward. Down below, in the lowest couple or three miles of the atmosphere, the circulation has actually gotten well along in its occlusion by now, having swirled together... Uh, What contrasts there were between warm and cold anyway, the uh, warm and cold contrasts that originally energized it, 
And while you can't see that on the water vapor per se, you can see something on that image, which gives you an indication of why the storm seemed so... uh, boringly undynamic here and why it hasn't, uh, for example, rotated a strong cold front down this way. And uh, that is the upper ridge that's currently passing across Canada. It comes eastward just uh, sort of in parallel with the uh, storm passing to its south. Upper ridges indicate warm air at the low and mid levels, so precisely where we ought to have cold air for thermal contrast and uh, baroclinicity and further strengthening, we have warm air instead. And that situation is not confined just to southern Canada either. Unseasonable warmth extends actually up across much of the northern end of the continent. A situation which is reckoned by the Climate Prediction Center to continue over much of the coming two weeks with the greatest anomaly as far as temperatures are concerned centered exactly where the coldest air typically resides this time of year from the northern plains and Great Lakes northeastward up across Hudson's Bay to northern Angava, uh, the northern Angava Peninsula. So, uh, robbed of any significant temperature contrast from which to brew up a decent storm, uh, I'm afraid we're up against a rather dull couple of weeks uh, to start 2023, uh, not to mention weeks which will be continuing in atypically warm fashion for early January, so my apologies to the skiers. So not uh, too much to talk about it coming up uh, in the coming few days. Tonight, low overcast will continue essentially unbroken as the devolving storm to our west gradually crawls eastward over us. The saturated layer uh, up above us is uh, just deep enough to produce precipitation, but not by much. But, uh, well, as we saw a couple hours ago, we may continue to squeeze out uh, bits and pieces of light snow from time to time as the column continues to cool through the overnight hours. Uh, Temperatures will drop uh, down towards about 30 by dawn, which, uh, along with uh, lingering low-level moisture and uh, wet surfaces, may produce a little slipperiness as we get into tomorrow morning. Winds will be light uh, southwesterly, generally below about 5 miles per hour. The cutoff low is going to edge over us and just east through tomorrow. That'll prevent ceilings lifting terribly much, so expect another rather uh, dark day, uh, possibly again with some passing light snow from time to time. Temperatures will uh, bump up a couple of degrees during the day to maybe 33 or 34 on light southwesterly winds, uh, slowly veering west and northwest late in the day. Northwesterly winds may uh, increase slightly overnight as the storm exits east, and uh, modest cold air advection overnight will take temperatures down into the mid-20s. Uh, I'm hoping that incoming dry air on Friday will finally break the cloud cover, but uh, that may take a little time. Uh, Otherwise, I think uh, uh, ceilings will lift uh, at least a little bit and thin uh, for a little more sunlight to come through, and temperatures will rise to around 30 on northwesterly winds up at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Weak surface high pressure should keep winds light through the overnight under partly cloudy skies, will low around 20. And skies will see increasing high clouds as we get uh, out into the day Saturday, and another weak system starts to approach us from the southwest. Uh, temperatures should hit 30 or so Saturday on uh, light north, north, light to north, n- light north to northeast winds. And light snow may break out uh, either later in the day or more likely in the overnight period. Uh, this system will also be weakening on its arrival, so I don't think we're going to see much out of this. Uh, temperatures will drop to the mid-20s overnight, rising back into the mid-30s on Sunday. And it looks like we're going to stay in the 30-degree range through uh, much of the uh, upcoming week. 
Uh, temperatures currently at the station on Bedford Street are 32 degrees. The dew point temperature is 29. Winds are out of the southwest at 5 miles per hour. Uh, we're overcast up at about 2,000 feet. Uh, barometer is uh, rising slowly at 29.72 inches of mercury. We go now to the first week of January in the early years of the 1960s. When big changes came to Madison schools and transportation, the Urban Renewal Program got good news, and a police officer censored a movie. Stu Levitan has the headlines from back in the day on this week's Madison in the 60s. All They melt into a dream Madison, the first week of January in the early years of the 1960s. The UW Badgers begin the decade suffering a whomping defeat on New Year's Day 1960, losing the Rose Bowl to the Washington Huskies 44-8. 200 loyal fans greet the returning team at Truax Field, but they don't get much of a response from the subdued players. Later that week, the Milwaukee Road discontinues train service from Madison to points in Iowa and South Dakota. And a new group working to improve the downtown business climate, the State Street Association, has its organizational meeting at Troya's Steakhouse, 661 State Street. The group names Howard Stuckey of Montgomery Ward, 311 <clears throat> State Street, as the first president. Names in the news this week, 1961. A unique honor for Parks Superintendent James Marshall, who has worked for the department since 1927, been its head since 1937, and shows no signs of retiring. By vote of the Parks Commission, the new 27-acre park on Lake Mendota, partially located in the village of Middleton, is now named in his honor. And Walter A. Frouchy, president of the Democrat Printing Company, names two new company vice presidents, sons John Jones Frouchy and W. Jerome Frouchy, whom they call Jerry. Early 1962 brings good news for the city's Triangle Urban Renewal Project, as U.S. Representative Robert W. Kastenmeier, Democrat of Watertown, announces that the Federal Urban Renewal Administration has approved almost $8 million in grants and loans. The Madison Redevelopment Authority will use the funds to buy and clear the 52-acre site, which is bordered by Regent, South Park, and West Washington, home, until now, to three generations of Italians, Sicilians, Albanians, Jews, and Blacks. The school board had never offered regular teaching contracts to a husband and wife. One could have a regular contract, but the spouse would have only an emergency contract under special circumstances. Until January 2, 1962, that is, when the board votes unanimously to offer regular teaching contracts to both the husband and wife. The next day, freedom of housing comes to the University of Wisconsin, as the powerful Student Life and Interest Committee votes to allow undergraduates over the age of 21 to live in the same apartment building as unmarried students of the opposite sex, something only graduate students were previously allowed to do. The new policy is effective immediately. New Year's Day 1963 brings Madison its first new superintendent of schools since 1939, as Robert Gilberts takes over from the retiring Philip Falk. 
Gilberts received his master's and Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin and has been the superintendent of schools in Oconomowoc. He's staying at the YMCA until a room opens up at the university club, and he plans to buy a house in the Hill Farms area for his wife and three children. And a new age looms in Madison traffic as the State Public Service Commission authorizes construction of a causeway across Monona Bay, adjacent to the railroad tracks. It's a big victory for Mayor Henry Reynolds, and five days after the PSC vote, he orders that a pile of urban renewal rubble, which he's been storing for a landfill in Law Park, be spread as a token start to the project. The Capital Times which has fought the causeway for years because editor William T. Evu thinks that making it easier to drive to Olin Park would harm efforts to build the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace at Law Park, condemns Reynolds for, quote, trying to blitzkrieg Madison into approving the upcoming bond issue to start the causeway's construction. A city ordinance bans the public showing of films which are, quote, obscene or immoral, but the law doesn't state who makes and enforces that determination. No problem, says Police Inspector Herman Thomas. I can do both. In early January, Thomas gets a tip about a foreign film at the Majestic Theater, Phaedra, Jules Dassin's retelling of the Greek tragedy of a second wife's illicit love for her stepson, starring Dassin's wife, the magnetic Melina McCurry, and a young and sensitive Anthony Perkins. Thomas watches the movie and agrees that the soft-focused, blurred image love scene is, quote, overtly immoral and, quote, sickening. Thomas tells the Majestic's assistant manager to cut the offending scene or close the theater. The police department's number two man, Thomas later sends an officer back to the theater to make sure the cut was made. Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union President William Gorham Rice calls this action intolerable and a, quote, perverse use of police power. Police Chief Wilbur Emery agrees that, quote, no one man should sit in judgment and proposes creation of a citizen's censorship committee, though he wants nothing to do with it. A few days after Thomas truncates the film, an ad hoc panel of citizens chosen by Emery finds the film appropriate for adults and restores the cut footage. It's the panel's only action. City attorney Edwin Conrad later advises that the city lacks legal authority to create a censorship board. This week in 1964, the UW faculty unanimously approves allowing all seniors, regardless of age, to live in off-campus apartments. There are now about 6,000 students who live off-campus and about 750 seniors under the current minimum age of 21 who cannot. The new policy is likely a stepping stone to letting younger underclassmen also live off campus. When developers Gerald Bartell and Robert Brooks proposed Capitol Pavilion, a five-story combination shopping mall and parking ramp on West Dayton Street between Wisconsin Avenue and South Carroll Street, they said they needed to build a pedestrian bridge from the pavilion to the Manchester department store. Specifically, a glass-enclosed skywalk, 16 feet wide, 22 feet above Wisconsin Avenue. When historic preservationists hollered about what the skywalk would do to the Capitol view, the city set up a special design team. State architect James Galbraith, UW artist-in-residence Aaron Borod, and engineer Adolf Ackerman to make a recommendation. 
On January 6, 1965, the committee declares that the view of the Capitol from the 16 streets that converge on the square to be, quote, part of the public domain that must be preserved as an inspiration for future generations as the heritage of a great city. Finding the skywalk to create, quote, an unfortunate visual interference with the Capitol, the committee unanimously rejects the plan. It now goes to the Plan Commission and the Common Council. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored, Capital View honoring WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggy helped produce it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.